Later in the sermon, we're going to be looking at the book of Exodus again, chapter 25. It's on page 83 in the Church Bibles. But we'll come on to that a little bit later. Because first of all, reminder of where we were in the story. Because last Sunday, we stood with the Israelites in terror and in awe at the foot of Mount Sinai. We saw the majesty and the power of God displayed in a cloud and thunder and lightning on the mountain. And we saw the holiness and purity of God burning like a fire so strongly and brightly that no sinful human being could survive it. And yet, in the midst of all that, we saw God in his mercy make a way for those same sinful people to approach him, to come near to him, to even share a meal in his presence and still to live unharmed. We saw how he made a covenant with them that they would be his people and how he gave them laws to live by. And we saw that it was through sacrifice, what Moses called the blood of the covenant, that such a thing was possible. And how the sacrifices that Moses gave for the people, sacrifices that had to be repeated over and over again, all pointed forward to the final sacrifice. When Jesus, the Son of God, would offer himself as the last, the once and for all sacrifice to take away our sins. And even let people like us come with confidence and assurance and with a clear conscience into God's presence. And so, at Mount Sinai, the people of Israel met with God at a very special place for them. The problem was, however, that Mount Sinai wasn't their final destination. They were on their way to the promised land. So having met God on the mountain, having enjoyed such intimacy with him, did they have to leave all that behind when they went back into the desert and on to the promised land? How could they know that God was still with them? How could they keep that experience of being close to him? You know, perhaps some of us may face a similar problem. Especially if we've had a close encounter with God, which we associate with some particular place or event. Can it be the same back in the ordinary world? And so we come to these next chapters of Exodus. And we'll see how God gave them a kind of portable Mount Sinai to take with them. A place where the separation that God's holiness demanded could still be kept. While still allowing God to live among his people and be accessible to them. And he did it through a, this construction called the tabernacle. A kind of portable temple in the desert. A tent. Although to call it just a tent is a bit like comparing a cathedral with your garden shed. Because it was a glorious construction, made of all the finest materials available to them. And he gave them details of all the furniture that would go in it, 
the clothes to be made for the priests, and the ceremonies to consecrate those priests. And the next seven chapters of Exodus are taken up with describing in meticulous detail how to build it. Now those of us who are working through the fine print of the hub building specification at the moment may sympathise. Because this is detailed stuff. And obviously seven chapters is far too much to read this morning, you'll be pleased to know. If you want to at home, it's chapters 25 to 31 of Exodus. All I can hope to do here is to read some snippets to give you a feel of what it's all about. Now, if you're following in the sermon notes this morning, um, if you arrived early, you may have got last week's notes by mistake. Please check it says the 26th of January on them. (laughs) If not, put your hand up and the stewards will help. So, first of all, from Exodus 25, the first 22 verses. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering from me from each man whose heart prompts him to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver and bronze, blue, purple and scarlet yarn and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, and hides of sea cows, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastplate. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Have them make a chest of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold both inside and out. And make a gold moulding around it. Cast four gold rings for it and fasten them to its four feet with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the side of the chest to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of this ark. They are not to be removed. Then put in the ark the testimony which I will give you. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. And make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upwards, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking towards the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark, and put in the ark the testimony which I will give you. There, above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you, and give you all my commands for the Israelites. And jumping ahead to chapter 26 and the first six verses. Make the tabernacle with ten curtains of finely twisted linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarn with cherubim worked into them by skilled craftsmen. All the curtains are to be the same size, 28 cubits long and 4 cubits wide. Join five of the curtains together and do the same with the other five. Make loops of blue material along the edge of the end curtains in one set, 
and do the same with the end curtain in the other set. Make 50 loops on one curtain and 50 loops on the end curtain of the other set, with loops opposite each other. Then make 50 gold clasps and use them to fasten the curtains together so that the tabernacle is a unit. And jumping ahead to chapter 28. Have Aaron, your brother, brought to you from among the Israelites with his son Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, so that they may serve me as priests. Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honour. Tell all the skilled men to whom I have given wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments for Aaron for his consecration, so that he may serve me as priests. These are the garments they are to make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a woven tunic, a turban and a sash. They are to make these sacred garments for your brother Aaron and his sons, so that they may serve me as priests. Make them use gold and blue, purple and scarlet yarn and fine linen. And finally, chapter 31. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, ability, and knowledge in all kinds of crafts, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of craftsmanship. Moreover, I have appointed Ohialab, son of Amishak, of the tribe of Dan, to help him. Also, I have given skill to all the craftsmen to make everything I have commanded you. The tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony with the atonement cover on it, and all the other furnishings of the tent. The table and its article, the pure gold lampstand and all its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils the basin with its stand, and also the woven garments, both the sacred garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons when they serve as priests, and the anointing oil and fragrant incense for the holy place. They are to make them just as I commanded you. Hopefully you can get a feel there of the detail, the intricacy and the glory of what they were building. So they had met with God on Mount Sinai, but they couldn't carry the mountain with them, so God gave them a temple. At first, until they reached the promised land, a tabernacle, a tent. And then when they settled into the land, it would be absorbed into the temple in Jerusalem. And it was the place where God would live among his people, would be with them. Where sacrifices would be offered to let them come close It was the very heart of Jewish life and worship. And in our reading, we saw some of the key elements. The Ark of the Covenant. (coughs) A chest made of wood and covered with gold. A box where the Ten Commandments would be kept. And on top of it, the atonement cover. The mercy seat. The place they would have thought of as God's throne on earth where he came to meet his people. And these both to be kept in the most holy place, the very innermost part of the tabernacle, 
sealed off from all the rest, where only the high priest was allowed to go. And then instructions for the tabernacle itself. A tent made of the finest materials, where even the pins holding it together were to be made of gold. Then the clothes for the priests, all covered in gold and precious stones, and rich in symbols showing how they represented the people before God. And amongst all these, instructions on how to build altars and lampstands and all the other furniture for a working temple. And finally, the anointing of this man, Bezalel, with the Spirit of God to carry out the creative act of designing and building this tabernacle. And surely, even if it were nowhere else, this is an affirmation of the work of the artist, the craftsman, the creative person, of those who want to make things beautiful and not merely functional. It's work that is empowered by God's own spirit. Now, in past generations, and in particular churches, you might well have found that they had a little model of the tabernacle and all the things that went in it, and they'd make a complete sermon series about them. I think it was Doug who told me he'd visited places, but they still had them. But we've only got one Sunday to look at the tabernacle. So what can we learn from it? Firstly, it would have been a constant reminder to the Israelites that God was with them. Whenever you looked out of your tent, there it was, dominating the centre of the camp. You couldn't miss it. And it gave them God's presence in a way that didn't go against his holiness. Because there were constant reminders for them that God is holy. They couldn't just take him for granted, and that they were only able to come near him by his grace and mercy. The tabernacle had sections, different areas you had to pass through before you got to the real heart. And as you went nearer and nearer the center, the restrictions on who was allowed there, and the ceremonies that needed to be performed to cleanse you from sin, became even more stringent. There was nothing here that let the people become over-familiar with the presence of God. And the constant, daily cycle of sacrifices meant that the fact of sin and their need to be freed from its consequences were always right there in front of them. And the second thing is the sheer glory of the place. We've only read snippets of the instructions But the whole thing is full of gold and silver and precious stones. If you wonder where it all came from, remember the beginning of the Exodus, when the Israelites plundered the Egyptians as they left. Now we come from a part of the church that is a little suspicious of too much bling when it comes to church and to worship. We like to keep things plain and simple particularly in a world where there's so much poverty and need. But on the other hand, we need to remember that this was for God's glory, to make a statement about his presence, and that these things were holy in the sense that they were set apart specially for the worship of God. 
So yes, we are suspicious of bling in worship. But we also remember that doing God's work on the cheap isn't necessarily honouring to him. Instead, it can just look mean and tatty, as if either he or we don't really care enough. There's a delicate line to tread between the two. And then, for those of you who like to dig a bit deeper, the scholars tell us that the whole story, and these instructions in particular, are written to bring to mind two other places. And these were the Garden of Eden and Mount Sinai. Which, if you think about it, makes sense because these were two places where the people had experienced closeness with God and intimacy. Now, there's not time to explore that further here, but it's worth a look in the commentaries if you want to follow it up. But to finish, I'd just like to ask one very important question. What's the relevance of all this to us today? Because, yes, it was very important for the Israelites back in Moses' time. But there's one very important fact we need to remember about the tabernacle. It's not there anymore. And the temple that replaced it, it's not there anymore either. In fact, Jesus himself was the one who prophesied its destruction, which happened nearly 2,000 years ago. We saw that when we looked at Mark's gospel recently. If we want to experience the presence of God, we can't go to Jerusalem to find a temple. And we don't have priests offering animal sacrifices for our sin. Something must have changed. And that something is obviously Jesus. The Bible sometimes talks about things that happen in the Old Testament as being a shadow or a foretaste of something that will be completed or fulfilled in the new. To see that, I really would recommend that you read the letter to the Hebrews alongside Exodus, because it goes into the difference that Jesus makes in far more depth than I can. And the claim is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the story of Exodus is pointing to. He's the one who completes what the story starts. And he's the one who gives reality to what was only a foretaste or a shadow. Last week, we saw how that was true for the system of sacrifices for sin. How he came as a new high priest to offer once and for all the perfect sacrifice that would do away with sin forever. To offer his own life his own blood, and that this has now been done and never needs to be repeated again. It ends the need for the old system of sacrifices. When it comes to the tabernacle or the temple, Hebrews takes us on even further. There are two key passages, and the ideas are quite complicated, but listen as I read them. First of all, in Hebrews chapter 8, and comparing Jesus with the old high priests in the temple, it says this. The point of what we are saying is this. We do not have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. 
Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They all serve at a, at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern you've shown you on the mountain. And then jumping ahead to chapter 9 and verse 23. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with, us, with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, it's all about things happening in heaven. So whether he's speaking literally or in pictures, I can't say. But the basic idea is this. That the true tabernacle, the true temple, the true place of sacrifice exists in heaven. And that any earthly tabernacle or temple, like the one Moses built, is only a representation, a copy of the one in heaven. And that's why Moses is given such detailed instructions about how to build it. But it's in the true tabernacle, the one in heaven, that Jesus, as our great high priest, offers the sacrifice that sets us free from the guilt and the penalty of our sins. And after that, any earthly copy just isn't needed anymore. So they can be done away with. And that's why they aren't there anymore. And there's no need to try and rebuild them. But what does it all mean for us? I think this. That our ability to meet God, to come into his presence, is not limited to any physical place. You don't have to go to Jerusalem to meet God. You don't have to go to a great cathedral. You don't even have to go to church. Now all these may be helpful to you, but that's more about the way they affect our senses, our emotions. We may feel better there, but they're not essential. It's not a rule that has to be followed. Jesus has opened the way so that we can approach God anywhere. And even more than that, do you remember the verse we looked at last week from Hebrews 10? Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. You don't need a temple. You don't need a priest. All you need is Jesus. 
He has made the sacrifice that lets even you, even me, sinful though we are, come close to a holy God and to do it with assurance and confidence even. We have this immense privilege that we can talk to God. But of course there is a warning. Because God is still just as holy as he ever was. He's still just as majestic. The old tabernacle reminded people of that very clearly. And so they approached God with awe, with holy fear, because they recognized who he was and who they were. The danger for us is that we lose that sense of awe, that we become over-familiar, that we lose the sense of God's holiness and his majesty. Yes, the Bible tells us to come with confidence and assurance because Jesus has opened the way and he calls us to come. But we pray that we may do so with holy fear and awe because the God to whom we come is holy. He is mighty. He is utterly above us. And if he invites us to be with him, to share his feast, then our attitude should be one of worship and thankfulness because it's only possible by his grace because of the price Jesus paid for us, his own blood. So we hear his words and we come and we worship. Amen.